This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 87 The Battle of Ape Canyon One of the most well-known and widely discussed cryptids of all time is the mysterious, hairy, ape-like giants of North America known depending on the region as the Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Skunk Ape, Grassman, among dozens of others. Seen all over the continent, they may differ in appearance or behavior, but one thing that is usually consistent is that for all their size and strength, they seem to be mostly peaceful. Often described as benevolent forest dwellers, much more likely to run away or hide than to confront, Yet there have been many accounts from the 19th century to the present day of a different side of these creatures, that of a ferocious beast, more than willing and able to attack or even kill when forced to. Although not as common as reports of more benign and gentle Bigfoot, the accounts of violent or aggressive attacks are every bit as terrifying as your favorite ghost story, and just as unsettling as the most bizarre alien abduction. These stories show that there is perhaps more to these cryptic cryptids than meets the eye. The Battle of Ape Canyon sits among the most horrifying of these hair-raising tales. Legends that come to us from the indigenous people of the northwestern states describe encounters and attempted coexistence with a bizarre tribe referred to as the Seatic. These people were known to possess strange supernatural abilities. In fact, they were so different from those who documented their existence that each and every native tribe that discussed them had prescribed protocols for avoiding the risk of making contact with them. Seatic warriors were described as being seven to eight feet tall, covered in what can only be described as animal hide, Thick, dark brown or black fur covered the majority of their bodies. They had the ability to mesmerize any living creature that they encountered. Some legends discuss the possibility that some of those who were unfortunate enough to encounter this mesmer had the idea of death willed into their minds so powerfully that their lives simply ended, vanishing from existence. They were said to live deep inside the mountain caves only venturing out to hunt and forage under the cover of darkness. During times of plenty among the native tribes, it was said that they simply left too few resources in the wild for the Seatic to subsist. This forced the beasts to resort to pillaging in order to survive, 
they would sneak into encampments and villages, stealing the stores of dried meat, and would even on occasion abduct the women that they came across. They communicated telepathically through their voices and were regularly described imitating the sound of wildlife in the area. They were legendary trackers with a sense of smell that we would liken to the most elite bloodhound and had a talent for camouflage that made it near impossible to get the upper hand on them in the depths of the forest. As decades passed, it appears as though the tribes of Oregon and Washington began to assume that the Seattic had somehow become extinct. Reported sightings and encounters slowed to a trickle before disappearing altogether. However, hunting parties continued to, on occasion, come across sets of oversized footprints that they would sometimes track for miles. As the 20th century brought with it the significantly more dangerous threat of eastern encroachment, the legend of the Seattic died away entirely. It would be these very settlers that found, as they shoved into native hunting grounds, that the legendary forces of the region sometimes shoved back. The town of Kelso, Washington, served as a hub for miners and loggers who worked the surrounding area, and the excessive number of brothels, taverns, and gambling dens quickly earned it the nickname of Little Chicago. It was just before sunrise on July 12, 1924, that a group of haggard-looking gold miners made their way into one such tavern and described an incredible tale to the collection of plastered patrons. According to the persuasive prospectors, they had encountered a group of what they referred to as mountain devils and narrowly escaped with their lives. Over the course of the morning, their audience grew and grew until the five men were standing on the bar, holding court to a packed house of awe-inspired citizens. This fanfare eventually caught the attention of two state park employees, J.H. Huffman and Bill Welch. The pair sat back and listened as the group of disheveled diggers told their story repeatedly between shots of watered-down whiskey. It stood out to them that the group's leader and his son, Marion and Roy Smith, were surprisingly quiet during the show. Gabe Lefevre and John Peterson were mostly off to the side answering questions from the audience. But dead center in the crowd, directing the whole thing, was Fred Beck. He explained to the enraptured townsfolk, with only occasional interjections from his companions, that the group had been in the foothills for weeks searching for signs of a gold seam. They had built a small temporary cabin to serve as a home base near the Lewis River, and had been having good luck until they were suddenly overtaken by the unshakable feeling that they were being watched from the depths of the forest. Wearily, they went on about their work but they were soon faced with obvious signs that they were not, in fact, alone. Tracks of unknown origin were discovered in the mud near their cabin. Tracks that measured at least 14 inches and appeared to only have four stubby toes. This discovery was quickly followed by a series of sightings of a large animal in the distance, estimated to be well over seven feet tall and obviously walking upright. The men found this to be incredibly intimidating. If only they had known what was in store for them, they would have packed their gear and left that day. 
On Friday, the 11th of July, the prospectors finished a late lunch and headed into the hills to pan for gold until sunset. Less than 20 minutes up the trail that they had blazed earlier in the month, the group's day trip took a turn they would never have expected. As they progressed along the base of the mountain, they found themselves face to face with a group of beastly humanoid creatures. They had just slipped out of the cover of a ravine that ran across their trail. Four beasts in total stood before them. Fred Beck described them as looking like enormous gorillas. They were covered from head to toe in thick, matted black fur, each of them weighing at least 400 pounds. The two groups seemed to be equally shocked by the sight of one another. A heavy silence fell over the scene. They stood frozen in surprise for what seemed like an eternity. Not a breath drawn between the nine of them. Until suddenly, the giant closest to the group took a giant step forward and let out a thunderous roar directly at the now-shaking men. In response, the four men behind Beck shrieked and began falling all over each other in a mad scramble to escape the massive monstrosities before them. Beck, however had a different and altogether less believable reaction. He immediately raised his rifle and began firing shots at their would-be attacker. Of the six shots fired by Beck, four successfully struck his target, and it was the fourth shot that caused the beast to lose his feet. Staggering back, a misplaced foot sent the poor devil tumbling sideways into the ravine below. This felt like a victory for Beck for only the tiniest moment, because the wounding and possible demise of their companion sent the remaining three into an unbelievable rage. The valley quickly filled with a cacophony of anguished howls and roars. The prospectors turned and ran the way that they had come, only breaking stride minutes later when they could no longer hear the pained bellowing of their victims. Their relief, however, was short-lived. Only moments later, they found themselves once again sprinting for their lives. There was no way for them to keep track of how many enormous, darkened figures began to emerge from the caves and fissures around them. They set off again, slower than before, but as fast as their exhausted legs would carry them. They ran the trail back to the relative safety of the cabin that had become a second home to them over the last month a cabin that felt less adequate than ever when they arrived. Open windows were quickly boarded up. Various pieces of equipment and their small collection of furniture were piled up against the door that didn't quite close. Only holding back those implements that could be used as weapons. Moments later, the attack ensued. The rickety walls of their cabin began to shake with a series of massive impacts against them. The howls that they had been running from now accompanied the pounding on the outside of their cabin. Soon it was impossible to determine their direction. They were entirely surrounded. The group was suddenly peppered with wooden debris as one of the thrown-together barricades gave way, and one of the attacking beasts attempted to climb through the hole it had just created. Roy Smith reared back the axe he was holding in a desperate attempt to defend himself and his companions, only to be swatted aside easily by the hulking beast. 
His father, Marion, quickly responded by unloading his pistol wildly in the direction of the attacker. Whether wounded or annoyed, the monster ultimately retreated. When the echoes of his shots faded, the men realized that the relentless pounding had in fact relented. No one dare speak. But they thought for a moment that they had survived. That this harrowing brush with the deep wild was over. Just as Fred Beck drew a deep breath to proclaim their victory, it became clear that the group's harassers had merely changed their plan of attack. Without warning, an enormous hole was smashed through the roof above them. The group shot back into the far corner as large rocks and boulders began to be thrown through the hole. Soon the rest of the attacking group seemed to join in, as the prospectors huddled together. It seemed more and more like the entire mountain was coming down on them in a terrifying hailstorm. More holes were smashed in the roof, and a grapefruit-sized rock collided with the back of Beck's head. He crumpled to the ground and was quickly drugged beneath a nearby table. The remainder of the group spent the next two hours huddled next to Beck's seemingly lifeless body, firing shots at the ceiling any time they heard the telltale signs of one of the beasts making a move for an opening. The tactic continued after Beck groggily regained consciousness and joined in. With no chance to light a lantern, the group stayed huddled together, defending their cabin in the type of pitch black that only the deep wilderness can provide. Beck claimed to have wounded at least four other attackers during the night. And at some point, in the early hours of the morning, the roaring, the hammering, the crashes of boulders stopped. The prospectors waited with bated breath for what felt like hours. Once they decided that the mountain devils had actually retreated, they quickly gathered what they could carry and ran as fast as they could toward civilization. After listening to this fantastic tale, Huffman and Welch offered to buy back a round of drinks in exchange for his guiding them back to the cabin where the attack had supposedly taken place. He nervously agreed, and that afternoon the pair of park rangers were scouring the ravine for signs of the beasts. The only items of interest were a handful of spent shell casings where the trail and ravine intersected. Not a single trace of the so-called mountain devils. Their skepticism, however, was much more significantly challenged when Beck showed them what remained of their cabin. The roof was left in tatters. The furniture inside was completely destroyed. The interior of the cabin was covered in rocks and boulders, and the rangers noted that a few of the boulders would have been much too large to move through the doorway, and could only have come through the massive gaping holes in the roof. In addition to the destruction of the cabin, the pair took impressions and measurements of a dozen or more enormous footprints in the mud surrounding the cabin. With the sun sinking below the mountain line, the trio quickly made their way back down the mountain, returning to the safety of civilization. Within days, the story was picked up by media outlets across the country. Newspapers dubbed it the Battle of Ape Canyon, and thrill-seekers, naturalists, and tourists alike began visiting the area in droves. While no further sightings or encounters were reported, this story remained in the forefront of those in the area for years to come. 
Was this an honest-to-goodness encounter with the sciatic of native legend? A prank played on the prospectors by rivals hoping to secure their claims? Who or what could possibly do the kind of damage described by those who saw the cabin in the aftermath? Now, nearly 100 years later, it is impossible to know for sure. What is certain is that the storied history of the Pacific Northwest is only made richer by the incredible tales of those who settled it, including the tale of the Battle of Ape Canyon. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. Now, the debrief. Ape Canyon. Yeah, this is a... I'm I'm actually pretty pumped that we're going this route. Something we've been talking about is how we've never hit on any Bigfoot story. Yeah. Yeah, Thus far, at least. I was ready for it, dude. We, um, because we talked about it when we did the AMA. Right, yeah. And, um, it was just on my mind, and, um, I went for, I went for broke with one. This is, like, a, a classic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a super solid story, and, you know, it's, I think it's one of probably the more better known stories of its kind, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's an awesome segue into, uh, getting into more and more of those topics who are kind of big heavy hitters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like we had come to the decision that, that we were going to cover Bigfoot slowly encounter by encounter, right? Not like a six part Mothman. (laughs) No, (laughs) not like like that at all. Yeah. No, you, the listener can expect to have little Bigfoot sprinkles throughout instead of having to eat a whole bowl at once. Not a lot of big Bigfoot sprinkles. But no. little ones. Just little ones. Little foots. Dude, I I think that's what the babies are called. <laughs> Lil foots. Yeah. Little foots. Lil sorry, Lil. Lil foots. Yeah. Lil foots. And that's foots with a Z. Or a Z. Duh. Yeah. Lil foots. So I really love this story. Like it's, it's honestly, it's the kind of story that we don't really hear anymore. I mean, you don't get, you don't really get Bigfoot encounters like this. Now you get like, look at this weird, vaguely human shaped shadow 700 yards from me in the forest. That can only be a Bigfoot. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is like firsthand nearly died living to tell the the story, right? Yeah. yeah, which is solid. Yeah, and it makes it a lot more fun for sure. This is, dude, this is another reason why I love stories from this era, the like gold rush era. Yeah, it's man when these like just little crazy towns out west where like wild shit happened and people would just come back from the forest with these stories that amazed people. I particularly love the scene where they come back and they're telling the story in the tavern. Mm-hmm. And they're like standing up on the bar right, telling the yeah. story to a whole crowd that's gathered to hear it. I mean, and, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and more people are into it. And yeah, you know, it's it's everybody there. Literally, they have the attention of everyone. Yep. And that's that's awesome. You know, and of course, like it's going to cause allow them to be more passionate 
and probably embellish a bit, but sure, you know, yeah, that's bound to happen, right? There are definitely some questions of embellishment. Uh, yeah, with this story. <laughs> at least a few. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you can't dismiss kind of you know, especially the ending where, of course, the, the park rangers and things like that they go back and you know, yeah, kind of get to see, witness the aftermath in this area. So, and I, I know we'll get there, but yeah, it just, it makes it very difficult to question yeah. that something, something crazy went on for sure. Yeah. Something crazy definitely happened here. I mean, there's no real, there's no real way of knowing exactly what it was, Yeah, but something fucked up went on out at that cabin. I do though. I love, I love the, this tavern setting. Actually, I love this area. With its like, you know, little taverns and brothels, brothels. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, like all basically being called what was it, Little Chicago? Yeah, which is, yeah. I mean, to me, that's that's neat. You know, like this area is very lively, right? Yeah, and so I imagine, like, you know, setting the scene and view, it, like, thinking about like what's going on during this time that they're there telling their story and stuff. Like, I imagine this place is packed. And, you know, yeah. everybody's shouting and hooting and hollering and raising their glasses and yep, beers spilling everywhere. You know, everybody just smells like a sloppy drunk, but it's a good time. Yeah, it's like a scene from a Western. Right. It's straight out of a Western. Yeah. For like sure. some guys like it. playing piano in the corner and there's a girl <laughs> yeah. in a giant dress dancing. And yep. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just like that. I uh, just like that. It's, yeah. That's that's that was the music yeah. actually. And this spot is like it's right at the foot of Mount St. Helens. So it's like gorgeous, picturesque right. Washington State. Like and this is you know, this is like sixty some years before Mount St. Helens erupts. Yeah. So like they have no idea that they're built they've built this town this place at the foot of an active volcano <laughs> which is ridiculous like no idea but one thing we talk about is how much we love outwardly love to view nature yeah you know like and how pretty like when we talk about a lot of places um you know then just like how pretty and try to set those scenes and everything and yeah this is this is another one very very picturesque yeah. You know, I mean, literally the epitome of, of beautiful. And yeah, that's that's also very just <laughs> crazy and almost ironic that uh, it is literally at the bottom of, of uh, yeah. yeah, just this active volcano. Yeah, and it, like, you have this, like, wild little western town nestled into this, like, you know, this scenic beauty it's it's a cool little juxtaposition and then you know above that the fact that a volcano could erupt on all of them at any moment <laughs> it makes it exciting cool. yeah you know? it's pretty wild it's like forbidden or taboo but sure. yet you're gonna be there and you're gonna do it anyway everybody's yeah. risking their lives Gotta get and they don't gold. even know it exactly yep but yeah gold I mean this is the height of the gold rush like yep gold 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 that's all they would have been about such a there. cool time, though, to be alive. Like, yeah. I think it would have sucked, but it also would have been really yeah. damn cool. 
for sure. It's one of those one of those time periods that definitely has a point of diminishing returns. Oh yeah, like, without a doubt. Yep. There's cool shit about it, but day to day life probably it probably would have been rough. I mean, like it's if there's lives. anything that's gonna make you rugged and like you know whatever it's what settling whatever the West. Is. yeah exactly dude <laughs> yeah like, everybody's gonna be burly <laughs> yeah those people are hard <laughs> yeah, absolutely no, no. that's just that's so crazy. like in the greater context of bigfoot you have the fact that this story takes place in the heart of bigfoot country in the pacific northwest right like of course a third of all bigfoot sightings take place in these few states a third of them so yeah it's yeah it's and a lot of that i think is because of legends like this i mean yeah and i and just how vast and dense the forest yeah. area yeah. is that i mean you know like it's very easy to get lost in these areas it's very easy to see shadows you yeah. know take like cast by over like overgrown shrubbery and you know very tall yep. trees and and just like yeah just i mean vast like plant life and stuff like that so yeah i think i think it a lot of it does have to do with because you know just the scene the setting yeah True. makes it very ideal right like we here in indiana have much fewer bigfoot sightings because we don't have an arboreal rainforest right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we we have our corn, our cornfield bigfoots. That's true. Big feats. Just running running from cornfoot cornfe- cornfoot cornfoot. <laughs> that's its name. The cornfoot. <laughs> oh, that's yep. perfect. All right. Exactly. So New Indiana we have, cryptid. Yep, we have the cornfoot running from cornfield to cornfield <laughs> with like little rows of for, of trees that you can see through. That's right. pretty much all we have here. And they're they're not like trees. They're just like those like little sticks that grow in the ground. Yeah. A lot of times. No, I mean we we have trees, we have forests, we just don't have like large, like dense forests. Dude, in the section of Indiana we live in, it is rare to see trees that you can't see the other side of. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get like rows of trees, or you might have like some if someone has a couple acres, they might have some of it wooded. Right. But like public land, no. Yeah, it's if I want to like see like forest area, I have to go visit my my sister and brother in law. And yeah. even that, it's like you can kind of see past the. Forest. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. You can like see a cornfield in the distance if you squint. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, so not I mean, that's not true. quite you know not quite as picturesque. We have to drive a couple hours south to get a, yeah. a forest you can't really see through. Yeah. But it's a it's an area that's completely different, though, than the whole rest of the state. Yeah, it is. It's so, our it's, our it's area unfair. in particular is like it's it it's the people who run this state a long time ago decided that this section of the state was going to be for feeding people. Like. That's what it's yeah. for. This land is set aside to grow things. It really is. Yeah. And that's why Indiana is one of those states that you only just drive through. Yeah. <laughs> Even like we've had to 
you know, like we grew up playing music, we, we've had to suffer the fact that bands just don't come to this state. Like, so many tours are like, are like Illinois and the next state is Ohio. I mean, being younger and <laughs> playing in right bands and putting on shows, we brought some of the biggest shows to our yeah. area. Just putting As them teenagers. on ourselves. Exactly. And bringing bringing in the touring bands because yeah they just weren't you know they weren't coming like they weren't coming to Indiana it was few and far between yeah it's and bizarre. so yeah it, it really is I mean that's literally just Indiana in a nutshell though I mean it okay so I get most of the state but our state capital is like the what eleventh or twelfth largest city in the country I mean yeah it's it's nothing to shake a stick at it's a pretty big city right like there's no reason why a band wouldn't think like they would have a draw there i don't know i think it's also politics yeah plays a role because we live in a very red state and the kind of music we listen to i mean that's true listened to always kind of leaned left right the punk stuff the all that so i think a lot of people just don't like the taste of indiana in their mouth (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know, it's an acquired taste, I think. It is. It is. It's a taste that doesn't settle too well with me, but, you know. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. At least we have cornfoot. At least we at least we have cornfoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, so this story. Yeah, yeah, get, well, yeah, getting back <laughs> to the story. I was also going to say I think cornfoot should fashion little shoes out of just like just all beaten up like corn stalks. Just yes, yeah, agreed. I'm into it. All right, more on cornfoot later. <laughs> oh Christ, where are we? So these these bigfoot, big feet, bigfoot, whatever. You know, yeah, these sciatic warriors are these massive, massive beings that, what, roughly seven to eight foot tall, you know, obviously I'm in four, five, six hundred plus pounds, I'm assuming. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah. Just uh, very, 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 very beastly. Yeah. But also oddly stealthy. Which, that, being so large and beastly <laughs> yeah. uh, you know uh, for the I guess lack of a better term uh, I feel like it'd be very, that's a very difficult feat to achieve being stealthy and yeah. yet being you know such a big thing right yeah absolutely I mean you think of other more like diminutive cryptids it makes sense that they would be like sort of elusive and they'd be able to hide behind things and you know what I mean? They would like be able to slither down into the undergrowth and you wouldn't be able to spot one. Right. But like these things are fucking massive. Yeah. They're massive. So like and this is what I always think when like flesh and blood Bigfoot guys talk about it. I'm like this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all to me. Yeah, I that, I like have a 400 sure. pound 8 foot tall humanoid is going to be this good at hiding. Yeah. It almost seems like it seems to kind of counter each other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's got to be. It's got to be. You know, something beyond physical. I, I, in my I agree. Yeah, I fully agree. Because otherwise, yeah. like, it just doesn't make sense. No. Like you basically have these seven, eight foot tall hairy ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense. It really doesn't. No sense. <laughs> you know, it's still neat, regardless. But uh yeah, that's where I agree. There's there's definitely something more than just straight flesh and blood for sure. Yeah. So there are these legends, right? The Seattic Warriors. Yeah. Which are pretty awesome. They're not. It's not just that they're physically imposing. They also have a full range of supernatural abilities, right? Like telepathy and the idea of like mesmerizing or com, you know yep. compulsion, like mind compulsion stuff like that. Yeah, that. How fucking scary is that one legend where they can just push the idea of death into your mind so much that you cease to exist? Right. Yeah. That. That's just wild. Uh, yeah. That's some dark shit. Right. Which I'm surprised Fred Beck or, you know, his group of those guys, the, these miners, that that didn't happen to them, right? Yeah. I mean, who's to say they're the same thing, though? That's true. I mean, I, I guess it, it could be something completely different. Just yeah. uh, coincidental, if you will. That they happen to be out in the same area that, uh, you know, there's this lore. And obviously at this point, like, these things are kind of long forgotten, you know. It's yeah, kind of died off. The, the stories and everything have died off due to time and everything else. Yeah. But there's clearly remember, still something there. And remember that legends get get bigger and crazier with time, right? So just like Fred Beck's story, those native legends also probably put on the pounds through the years right so like maybe they are the same thing but maybe the you know supernatural abilities and all that got you know came from the blending of having these crazy violent hard hard to deal with situations with these like giant creatures blended with the the tribal belief systems yeah i mean that's true uh, yeah, that's that's a good way to kind of look at it because again, it kind of goes into yeah the beliefs and the way that you know these things are passed down through cultures and you know and you know the yeah. stories that kind of build up around them and yep. the way that they specifically see them or maybe the way that they describe them or treat them as like these kind of horror stories or these tales to. Um, you know, almost prevent like everyone else from like leaving these tribes or yeah. going out on their own and stuff, right? Yeah, namely their children. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, a lot of that comes from that. We talked about this way back when we did the Kushtaka, right? Because that's another tribe that had this legend about this crazy monster in the forest that could mimic other things' voices, yeah. and they could turn you into another monster and. This just terrible fate that might befall you if you venture off into the forest. Which, I mean, being told that as a child, that's, it's going to be like, oh, wow. Okay, this, you know, especially the more and more, like, people are telling you, and the more and more scarier that they make it out to be, um, the more and more scary they make it out to be. And just, uh, you know, and kind of really, like, emphasizing, like, how dangerous this, the possibility of these things are. Yep. Then... Yeah, I, if I were a kid, I'd be like, "Shit, I'm, I'm never, I'm never going outside." 
Exactly. This is your fault. <laughs> yeah. Never. Never going outside. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, a lot of people associate this. You know, you hear a lot of times people talk about how these legends revolve around areas that are sort of mysterious to the people who create the legends. Right, right? of course. Whether it be the forest or the water. Yeah. A lot of, like, deep water legends. Now, UFOs and space, that's, like, the zone of mystery for us now Mm -hmm. is space, right? But it's also, it also tends to be the biggest danger in the area, right? Yeah, So, like, these tribes in the Pacific Northwest didn't want their kids wandering into the damn rainforest, right? So, you gotta make a monster. You gotta make a monster so that your kids don't go off the trail. Yeah, I mean, especially, like, all this just untouched land and everything, right? Yeah. That, yeah, it is. Every, basically, everywhere you look is danger. Yeah. And, like, the the biggest danger for the Tlingit people with the, who created the Kashtaka, the biggest danger for them was the water. So they create this, like, you know, this otter monster. Right. That, that lives at the, and will draw you into the water. Anytime a kid starts feeling like, hey, that water looks like it, it would be fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to run down there. Then they have to second guess themselves like, oh, am I being drawn there by a monster that wants to eat me? Like, yeah. So I think that lines up for I, sure. I agree. I agree for sure. The biggest yep. mystery and the biggest danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's still room to be room for curiosity, right? Yeah, of course. And so um, and I think that's also going to get the better of people. The core of every myth is truth, right? Yeah. So it's all it would take is like for someone to actually go down to the water and get attacked by something one time to plant the seed of like, shit, maybe there's a monster down there. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, yeah. Especially if it's something that they can't immediately explain or didn't quite see, and then, you know, they're just kind of fighting to get away. Yeah. And then things are going to build off of that. Yeah. Some, you know, some um, scouting party from a, from a tribe in the 1700s goes deep into the forest and gets attacked by, you know, some remnant of Gigantopithecus, some, like, huge remnant of a of a hominid an ancient hominid that's living out there maybe doesn't exist still but then did right and that becomes the basis for a whole legend right yeah yeah that's true it's it's crazy to think about though like just kind of the base that these things are built upon are most likely built upon at least right yeah you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, because I mean, obviously we're, we're talking about it and this is years and throughout, you know, throughout history, these things are talked about and passed on and, you know, sometimes become more of an idea than anything, you know, anything at all. But, you know, still just the fact that we're still telling these stories and, you know, yeah. discussing these things like as if they are real or still they're here. available yeah. right they're still there exactly yeah i mean the stories are just as compelling now as they were 200 years ago yeah in my opinion i agree right i agree for sure they wouldn't still be around if they weren't right right and i mean this story for example 
You know, yeah. then again, the whole like going in and you know talking themselves up that they came so close to you know to death and lived to you know, lived to tell the story and you know again as yep. we as we've already talked about, but yeah, like you know it, having things like that throughout history and even the things that kind of back it up back the some of these tales and and folklore and things like that up just only add to it and make it that much more compelling and that much more like believable right yeah absolutely that's it also reminds me of um nahani valley how the the guys came back with the story of these encounters and oh without a doubt yeah man and that's what i you know i mean obviously nahani valley i think the area is going to be a little bit different than something like this this specific northwest area um you know, but still, same same basic basic like principles of it all. Yeah, absolutely. So, getting back to the story as we're as we're talking, yeah. and kind of getting more into like this this whole ordeal. You know, everything that happened. We have these miners that went out. They had their you know their little kind of makeshift temporary cabin that they're living in. That they're you know whatever else that they've been staying in. And then they're what this one day that they're going out, and I think it's what twenty minutes into their trip, and they come across the the four, yeah, like these four bigfoots, bigfoots, <laughs> yeah, maybe a cornfoot in there. I don't know, but <laughs> no, yeah, but no they come across them, and it's like face to face, like a standoff, yeah, right, yeah, which that's pretty damn terrifying. Yeah, that's wild. It really is. Because you don't know who's going to make the move, and you don't know, like, if you even start to fall back, are yeah. they going to attack regardless? Is it going to be like, yeah. oh, we're standing our ground, and if once you do fall back, you're going to be fine? But the second that the big one, I'm assuming this is the main, main, you know, yeah. he's the he's the head the honcho guy, right? Just comes forth and just lets out basically this blood-curdling roar. Yeah. And then Dude. Fred just like, oh well, I guess I better shoot at it. Yeah, that's one of the parts that like that I found pretty fantastic, pretty like incredible. Yeah, like in its true meaning, like not credible. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I was like, gonna say I didn't know if you were just thinking, man, this dude's ballsy as shit. <laughs> no, no, no. It's I mean that's. That sounds like bluster to me. Oh, I agree. When he's telling the story, right? Like, oh, all my companions were falling all over each other trying to get away, and they were screaming like girls, and I just lifted my... Yep. Feel the heft on this rifle? Can't scare me. I lifted it right up. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like tough guy shit. I agree. Yeah, for sure. Then again, one of the only things that the park rangers later find is all the spent shell casings right there on on the trail. Yeah. So, I don't See, know. That That's the thing. That's like, that's what makes this whole thing just very difficult to dismiss. Yeah. Right? It really is. Dude, This that whole scene scares the shit out of me. The idea of, like, coming around a bend, and there's, man. I think the worst just, part of all of it, though, is after he shoots this thing and it falls into the ravine, then you have these three that are just pissed yeah. and you know 
if you don't move now, like it's over yeah. for sure. You know, there's they no, go, no doubt about it. They go pun intended ape shit. Exactly. Yeah. They've re- they, yeah, they've, I mean, you just fucking killed their dude right in front right, of them. Exactly. They, they like, were probably, you know, it, I don't, yeah, I don't know. We can only speculate, but they were probably only being like, Hey, back off. This is our, you know, our territory. Yeah. yeah. Given it, they would have been like, yeah, slowly maybe went like retreated they probably maybe possibly would have not had to even bother with the encounter and then went back to the the cabin and you know closed up shop in my home sure i mean based on a hundred years of bigfoot encounters that i've you know reading them since then right you can assume that for the most part these things are peaceful and just want to be left alone yeah right you shoot and kill one in front of its yeah. friends. That's just like being left alone. I mean, that's like you know, real life. Like you know, if someone attacks like your friend, yeah, you know, like it's going to be hard not to want to defend, or you know, like it, yeah, it's it's within our nature to try and defend ourselves, regardless. Yeah, I mean, you could pick the the biggest pacifist on earth, but if you walk up to him and his wife in a restaurant and slap her in the face, you might be in a fist fight. Yeah, exactly. You know what I you mean? I mean it's, like, it's kind of common sense, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, did he think he was going to shoot all four of them? Because <laughs> it took him six shots and to take down one of them. And only four of them actually, yeah. you know, hit or made a yeah. difference, right? And it was the fourth yeah. one that finally caused him yeah. to stumble back. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just man that that whole scene just scares me. It scares me so much. It's awesome, like, though. I often think about like what I would want my last words to be. Yeah, right. And I've only come to the conclusion of what I don't want my last words to be, which is wait, wait, wait. As long as that's not my last words, or no, please we, don't. Right, just wait, wait, wait. That's the worst way to go. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you just put a damper on this episode. Awful, dude. <laughs> awful. It really I is mean, awful. I, I agree. When I wrote the damn story, I, you know, referred to... I couldn't help but feel bad reading the story about... I couldn't f- help but feel bad for the Bigfoots in that encounter. Yeah, honestly. I agree. In that I'm, initial I'm encounter. right there with you, for sure. I literally, in the story, called referred to them as their victims. Yeah. Like, because they're just, like, wailing in, in anger, maybe. Fucking sadness, grief, maybe. I mean, you know, how we don't know how these things process their emotions. Sure. Um, you know, and maybe this wailing was them literally just... Sadness. Like, just full yeah. sadness, and... Which is terrible. Yeah, it's awful. It really <laughs> it's is so awful. Terrible. Like yeah. this Dick Beck guy, like Yeah. And he of course and- is the one, you know, like glorify glorifying this story. Yeah. And this encounter. Yeah. So yeah. Shame on yeah. you, sir. Shame on you. <laughs> exactly. Maybe uh, wait next time death. and see if they're actually going to attack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, that step forward in the roar could, like you said, have just been like, leave us alone. Yeah. But the other thing to take into consideration is, do you want to wait for something to attack you? 
or do you want to be the first to sure. have the upper hand? Yeah. I mean, that's it's, fair. It's, it's, it's such a difficult call to make. And I feel yeah. like I don't, I don't think like my first, my first instinct would have been to just start guns a blazing, but like, I think that would be in the back of my mind for sure. I sure. would, I would probably be like literally holding onto my rifle, like, you know, about yeah. ready to go. I mean, I, yeah, I definitely I get that. Any ethical hunter though, will tell you that if they're out there to get an elk, they keep like a side piece on them in case they run into a bear. Yeah. Right. But when you encounter a bear, you try to scare it away physically first. Right. right? Exactly. You get big, you yell at it. And before you shoot at the bear, you shoot in the air. Always a warning shot. Yeah. Always. Because most of the time that works and you don't have to kill the fucking bear. But were they in too close a proximity for that to even be a thing? I don't know. Dude, I, I read like 10 different like different discussions on this right. story. Like different writers telling the story and none of them... None of them described the actual distance between the two groups in this encounter. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, like, you know, again, like, I'm just, I'm trying to look at both sides. Yeah. Obviously, absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't condone just to, like, going all willy-nilly and just saying, you know, like, we're coming. Kill them all. Yeah, exactly. Not at yeah. all. But at the same time, like, you do, or should at least be aware of that idea, like, do they attack you first or do you try to have the upper hand or what is going to be, yeah. what is going to allow you to live, live through this? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, it could have been, that could have been just a warning roar that, you know, he comes forth and yeah, again, if it, or it could I have th- been like, I'm going to eat you. Right. It very well could have been <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think what they should have done is at that point kind of started to back away. And then obviously if they start to come forward, then that's a, you know, that's probably sure. a sure bet that something's going to happen. And then, yeah, maybe at that point you stand your ground. Yeah. But like assess the situation before continuing. That's literally from our agreed from the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. But still, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, that works here for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know. It's a tough situation. People do crazy shit when they're terrified too. So yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's true. Yeah. Like fear, I think is one of our worst weaknesses yeah. and the fact and that you know, it's just, you know, you're going to do whatever you can do to yeah. protect yourself or try to avoid fear, right. Or avoid the situation. I would say, whatever. I would describe fear as a double-edged sword. Yeah. For sure. Because it definitely saves you from lots of shit. That's right? true. It yeah. allows you to survive a lot of things. But at the same time, it makes you it can it can make you irrational. Very, very true. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think that's the better better way to look at it. Yeah. Because it, it, it can. Yeah, it can definitely go both both ways, but it can cause definitely some irrational thoughts and, and actions for sure. I mean, getting that shot off early may have, you know, the shock of that happening and maybe they weren't expecting it. Maybe it was just a, a warning roar and they weren't expecting to get shot at. And maybe him shooting at them and surprising them is what gave them the head start they needed to make it back to the cabin ahead of them. You know yeah, what I mean? True. You, you never know. That's mm-hmm. one of those situations where, like, you know, when you think back, you're like, well, what would have happened if I would have, like, 
jerk the wheel right instead of left like who fucking knows it it could have been worse or it could have been better unfortunately there's always that afterthought yeah or like how would this have been different had i taken you know had i taken you know point a versus point b or direct whatever like you know yeah gone in that direction versus versus the the opposite or the other option so yeah it's i you know obviously something we're we're never gonna know you can't you can't see both sides and to be able to be like okay well let me okay this can go this way you know that that's gonna go that way you weigh the pros and cons you can't write up like a damn list or anything you have to you have to be able to yeah just go on instinct exactly yeah it's and i mean they're they all lived so maybe he made the right call Right. Maybe I don't know. maybe at the end of the day he did, but at the same time, like I can't help but to still feel like it was not. I feel like it was just the wrong way to approach it. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't like any time anything dies. So, like, it it's easy for me to see him as like the asshole in the situation. And maybe because, that's our maybe that's our problem on this show too, yeah. is because we're we're both that way. And it's so like the way that we look at it, it's like, oh well, he killed a Bigfoot. Like, yeah. Exactly. We don't know if he was a bad guy or not. You know, it's Yeah. But we weren't in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. So it, experts, it's gonna be way different. Right? Exactly. Yeah. But so after that, you know, they they escape back to the cabin. They're quickly, I, which I I'm surprised that they're able to like start boarding shit up and like get you know prepping so quickly. Yeah. Even though obviously it's not making a big difference, but it it, it yeah. helped. You know, like these. Also, you're skipping over one of the scariest bits too, which is on the way back to the cabin. On the way back to the cabin, they. Like basically, they keep running until the the they can't hear oh, them howling that's right. anymore. Yeah, and then the fuck it, and then suddenly they're surrounded by. They're howls. coming out of the woodworks at that point. It, yes. Yeah, and then more of them. They're coming out of every cave, every crevice. Like, dude, they're just like pouring out of the forest. Well, see that to me lets me know that they've really pissed these things off. You know, yeah. like that. Yeah, without a yeah. doubt. Like I'm. I'm impressed that they survived throughout the night. Yeah, me too, dude. It's that's scary shit. Yeah, like suddenly just gangs of shadowy Bigfoots all around you. <laughs> yeah. Dude. I, I didn't even think about that on the way on the way back. I'm you know kind of skipping yeah. too, but yeah, no, you're right. That's that's probably one of the worst parts. Yeah. Because they're it all really coming out from everywhere. Yep. And it's just like, oh, I thought there were three. Maybe yeah. he. Maybe at that moment he's like, "Shit, I yeah. wish I would not have." Uh, too late. Yeah. See, and also to me, this is part of the story that again leans away from flesh and blood. Yeah. Because I feel like if there are dozens, scores, hundreds, whatever, of these things, there's no way they're all hiding. Right. I mean, there's no way these things are like slipping through a fucking portal from a pocket dimension to come and wreck these fuckers. Yeah, I agree. There, there's no way they're all in the caves. Yep. Yeah. No. Any anytime we can we can mention rifts and portals and you know yeah. dimensions. Yeah. I know. I'm I'm yeah. I'm always on board. But yeah. No, I agree. That's and that's that's how I view you know a lot of this. It's it's very. 
especially when it comes to Bigfoot or its multiple variations, is yeah. I don't I don't think it's all flesh and blood at all. You know, there's there's no way. Yeah, yeah. And of course, like when we talk about like the Ponty and we talk about star nations and we talk about the, the big, the yeah. race of Bigfoot being one of these races that are part of these star nations and stuff like that. Like, you know, like if you want to look at it that way, then yeah, definitely not flesh and blood. Like obviously, yeah. but yeah, so I feel like there's, there's definitely some, some abilities and we already know that they have some of these crazy abilities anyway. Yeah, according to so, the indigenous peoples. Right, according yeah. to the lore and everything. So I mean, yeah, it would be it would be hard not to believe they couldn't just like poof, poof, poof. like there's like they're looking at a board and it's like, you know, <laughs> like thinking of um what's uh oh my gosh, that one one movie. Uh but they all the never mind, it doesn't matter. So anyhow, there's <laughs> a board with like all of them on it, and then all of a sudden, like you see one gets X'd out and they're like, Oh, we better come you know, like yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Who knows? Regardless. Were you thinking about Monsters Inc.? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about the uh that, that one movie with Katniss what's her what's her face? Oh. Fucking uh what is that even called? Like Hunger um, Games. There we go. Hunger Games. Yeah. It is. I had Mockingjay in my head, but that's yeah. one of the other movies. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I was like, I was thinking of it like that. It's like, you know. Yeah. Or like Battle Royale. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yep. One of them just drops. Yeah. I mean, we should have said up front in this episode, be prepared for a shitload of tangents because we were finally talking about Bigfoot after I mean, a yeah. year and a half. Yeah, you know, you're, yeah. you're right. Yeah. So, anyway, they get back to the cabin. Yeah, so they get back to the cabin, uh, which is... Yeah, like I said, and that's where I was talking about. Like, they, they immediately start, like, just locking this place down. Which yeah. I'm extremely impressed by. Yeah, I mean, they get back and they're like, well, we thought this was good, but now that we need it as a defense, we're realizing how shitty it is. But open like, windows, the door doesn't close all the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I, I thought that little bit was pretty funny. Um, yeah, but like the the one major thing, I mean, they seem to really hold things down pretty well during yeah. this attack. Outside of that one that like ends up breaking through one of the barricades. Yep, and yet they're still able to deter it away at that point. Like, so like, yeah, I feel like they do really well about about locking it down. Um, yeah, they defend it pretty successfully. Until. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> the aerial attack, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Until some big ass boulders come flying through the roof. Dude, imagine that. Like, you're just. You're. you're they're like, things start to quiet down, you know? Yeah. All right. All right. Maybe you're in the clear. No, you can't. You can't let your guard down. All of a sudden, like, these giant ass rocks and boulders just, just start coming from overhead. Man. Like, they, you're. To me, I'd be like, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I you mean, just try to land, <laughs> just try to jump under one of these things and <laughs> right, go out exactly, the quick way. Yeah. Instead of getting torn piece from pe- like pe- to pieces by a fucking yeah. Bigfoot. Yeah. Because I mean, you don't know where that's going to fall. You don't know where that's going to come no. crashing, crashing down. Like, yeah, that would be, that would be, that'd be extremely terrifying. Way worse than them trying to come in through the doors, the windows, like break down yeah. the walls and stuff like that. That would be way worse. Yeah. And like, 
Fred Beck gets one to the head. Yeah, and goes and unconscious. He, I was going to say he's out for he's out for a while. Two hours. That's insane. And like wow. one of the accounts I read said that when he was telling the story in the tavern, he got to the part where he went unconscious for two hours, and then when one of the other guys tried to like pick up the story for a while, he was unconscious. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, when I woke up. <laughs> And kept telling the story for because everything was about Fred Beck. He feels yeah, like, like he was the ham. savior of this whole situation. Yeah, I mean, come on, guy. All I know is those dudes held down the fort, right? Like the yeah. one dude, Marion Smith, who was their original leader. Fred Beck isn't even the leader of the right. It was prospecting group. Marion and his kid. I I, I know I yeah, wrote down Roy. their names. Yeah. Yeah. Which during so, the time of the at the tavern, they're not even saying a word. No. Right? So No. And Marion is the one who who ran off the one who broke through the window, right? With his like pistol fire. Yeah. He runs that one off. And the the four dudes hold down the fort for two hours while Fred takes a nap under a damn table. <laughs> Get it together, and Fred. Like, Figure it out. Yeah. But then somehow he and Fred is the one who started all this shit. Right. By shooting it. And, like, he somehow he turned it into the Fred Beck show. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, if I it weren't just for like, your buddies, you would have not survived that. You, yeah, no way. I think he's just, like, one of those guys who had, like, the gift of gab. Yeah. You know? Like, he was just the one who was able to stand up there and like tell a compelling story right yeah he already has everyone's attention why not keep it you know he obviously yeah probably very energetic very you know very much an entertainer one of those born storytellers right exactly yeah but yeah he um he goes unconscious for two damn hours and they just like they keep breaking holes through the through the roof with more boulders. Yeah. And anytime they hear one of them like scrambling on top of the roof, like going for a hole to get in, they just like unload shots into the ceiling. And they manage to hold them off. That's crazy. For the night. Yeah. Very, very impressive. It is. Does that mean if you imagine how many of these came out like during, you know, during this all going on? I'm sure probably hundreds, maybe, maybe, maybe not that many, but I bet I was, it felt like hundreds. I was going to say, I'd like to think <laughs> at least. Yeah. I think more than one is going to feel like hundreds at that point. Yeah. Agreed. So they go back, they tell their story and it attracts two of the park rangers. Right. Or they were parking. Sometimes they're called park rangers. Sometimes like park employees, state park employees. Um, At least somebody that oversees. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. This somebody this who area. knows the area. Yeah. yeah. And they literally, they're just like, we'll buy you a drink if you'll take us out there. And he's like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Takes them out there. And they they get to investigating, right? And they find the shell casings from the initial encounter. Yep. No sign of of the Bigfoots anywhere. Right. But then they get back to the cabin and it's like fucking wrecked. Yeah. Destroyed. Just how they described it when he was telling the story. Um, 
They find a ton of footprints around the cabin in the mud. And I mean, and these are very distinguishable footprints. Like Yeah, like know. 14 inch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they take impressions of the footprints. They measure the footprints. The thing to me that really stands out is they make note of the size of the boulders inside the cabin. Yeah. And like too big for the five men to carry themselves and too big to fit through the door. Yeah, exactly. So they would have had to come through the giant holes in the roof. So if the five guys couldn't even carry one of those boulders, who's throwing it through the roof? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like something weird went on. Yeah. There's something, there's something or some, I don't know if I would say someone, but, Something at play, you know, that's that's yeah. causing some of this, you know, behavior. Some, you know, obviously something happened. Yeah, absolutely. And they, that just they can't unless they created like this extravagant police system, and they somehow worked on like you know being able to cart these or roll these boulders yeah. or something. They did like a building the Egyptian pyramids type, shit. right? Yeah, yeah. Just five guys whatever out in the wilderness by themselves yeah just for funsies i guess <laughs> come on like <laughs> yeah so yeah they um after they do the investigation they go back and kind of the rumor like spreads right the, the right, story and that's when like the news picks it up and yeah because yeah. they kind of back it up for them they're like yeah we definitely saw some weird shit out there yeah and so news outlets pick it up all over the country like it spreads obviously things don't spread like they do today but it, it gets to the point where they start having a ton of people flood into this little town and i mean you know this at that time to it's all and- like word of mouth and you know like of course these like news publications and things yeah. do rapidly you know, rapidly spread like yeah you know it's almost as quick as it does today i think right rapid is just a relative term right right yeah obviously yeah. i mean they yeah. didn't have things like social media that's gonna report on sure you know yeah x you don't get like a tiktok that, video right. of him doing the the speech in the tavern <laughs> unfortunately yeah they didn't turn it I mean, into I'd watch like the an, shit out of that and auto-tune the news episode or anything <laughs> yeah um, so they they show up all these people show up to see if they can get a, a look at the mountain devils and um, which is an odd I think an odd term for them but yeah it is know. it's weird obviously at that time but like sensational yeah right but um no one no one finds any oddly enough and uh Nothing really, I mean, nothing really comes of it. It kind of, like, fades. It's still, like, very much a present story in the, you know, in that area. Right. It's told in that area. But it just kind of, like, fades off. And the way a lot of these stories do, you know? Maybe, you know, these Bigfoots, like, they felt like their efforts were, you know, just not enough at that point. And, like, they've they retired to um you know 
basically and retired to hiding the rest of their lives yeah. just uh Slip avoid back to another right their actual dimension yeah <laughs> um so and then a thing happened okay so in the 1950s which was about 30 years later yeah um an article comes out in the Seattle Times and they claim to have solved the mystery they had okay. a group of people <laughs> Yeah, they had a group of people come forward that were members of the YMCA troop at Camp Meehan, which is near there. Okay, yeah. Um, and those people claim to have been the ones who were terrorizing the the group. <laughs> okay, yeah. So they say that they were throwing rocks down at the cabin from the hillside. And giant boulders? Yeah, well, they have like a giant ass like catapult or something. Their whole story was that like all that stuff was exaggerated. Oh, okay, right. So they said that the prospectors were drunk and probably mistook the group's heckling and whooping as sounds of sasquatches. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fred Beck came out and denied this openly. Like he insisted that what they encountered were monsters. That he saw them with his own eyes, that he was up close and personal with them, and they were not men. I mean, maybe right. Fred is a drunk. <laughs> and all these people were just, like, pissed drunk the whole time. And he's, like, he's actually standing in front of a tree. He's like, oh, I'm come at you. You know, like, and that's, like, started this whole thing. And they're like, oh, this thing is moving. <laughs> right. <laughs> and all these ones coming out of the woodworks are just the other trees that they're passing. Yeah. Could have been. Maybe. Also, um, people... So when this article came out, people got it, like, got the idea to go out and try and debunk the whole thing. Yeah. Right? So people go out there and they... They replicated the tracks that were cast... Because there were there were actual like casted footprints, right? Yeah, from it, and they replicate them almost identically by sort of folding their knuckles down on their hands and making a print that like lined up with the front end of a bare footprint, right? So like mm. they would make a print with their 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 foot, their bare foot first, yeah, and then they would cover the toe end of that footprint with their hand with their knuckles bent down which left like four stubby toes and it's much longer than a normal footprint right okay so it's like the two prints layered together i feel like that's extremely elaborate though yeah but hoaxes often are you know any any possible or possibility of fame for something that nobody can else can call you out on yeah yeah it's it's a lot though I mean yeah that's crazy <clears throat> um okay over time over time um Fred Beck's theory and the other four kind of parted ways yeah because all the other guys they were pretty much flesh and blood guys like they thought like we encountered an an animal in the forest right Beck was not a flesh and blood guy. So, and he wrote like, he wrote articles and pamphlets and all kinds of shit about this for years. He believed that what they encountered were highly intelligent 
interdimensional beings. He also, he thought that, like, because he wrote these articles and pamphlets connecting the sightings in North America to Yeti sightings in Asia. Yeah. And he believed that these were coordinated attacks from beings from a parallel universe. That, that's pretty damn smart. Right. I didn't think Mr. Beck had it in him. Yeah. Like, especially for that time, you know? Yeah. That was his jam. That's. He was all about it. Wow. Because, I mean, that's, that's right where I line up. Yeah. Pretty much me too. (laughs) I don't know if it's like necessarily a tax. I mean, yeah, I don't know about that, but but right. I, yeah, I think origin wise for sure. I, I think he's spot on. Yeah. Agreed. There was um, one more thing I wanted to tell you about before before we wrap, because I know we're like well over an hour now, and we've pretty much <laughs> talked about the story right. well through. But in almost the exact same location, right outside this town in 1963, so 40 years later, yeah. four mountaineers were up there, and... They stopped to take a break, right? And one guy, Jim Carter, he was going to stay back in order to get like an epic picture of the group descending the mountainside from a distance. Okay. That was the plan. Um, these guys, unfortunately, never would know the beauty of drones. <laughs> but um, after a few hours, they start, the group starts freaking out because he still hasn't caught up, right? Like he's... He's supposed. I don't know what the plan was. Maybe he was faster than them. Maybe they were going to go slow. Right. I don't know. But he was going to. The point is, he should have caught up with them, and he didn't. After after a while, they decide to backtrack and go find him. They find a spot where a fight had obviously taken place. Like shit was all fucked. Tree branches were broken. Like the snow was all messed up. Um, and they found a box of his camera film that had just been like thrown on the ground. They follow his tracks, which are super erratic and go in a random direction, not any way that they would have expected him to go. And, like, based on the tracks, he was clearly running and, like, jumping over dangerous shit. Yeah. Right? Like, he. so they assume he's he was chased. He was chased by something. And then the tracks drop off next, like, right next to a steep drop off. Oh. Right? Yeah. So they go down... They go down to Kelso, the town, for help. And the authorities searched for the guy for two weeks and never found a trace of him beyond those initial tracks. And this was, like, within a football field of where that initial encounter took place. That's that's, that's close. Yeah, that's close by. Yeah. Just, that's crazy. Just an interesting, yeah, and yeah, almost the same spot. Especially the fact that it just kind of ends right here. I mean, yeah, that would suggest, oh, yeah. it went over, you know, over the cliff. Sure, but or maybe he didn't exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's where I'm getting getting at. Yeah, this thing just like pulls him right in, and they probably had a tasty dinner that night. <laughs> Or they're like, hey, so this is us. Tell us about yourself. Right? <laughs> they just like pull him in. Suddenly he's in like a coffee shop in parallel Paris. 
<laughs> all ran by Bigfoots. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They're like, my name down, is Mark. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll grab your drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll be taking care of you today. <laughs> I like that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just accidentally slipped into a Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you've got like, it's also happens to be open mic day, night, whatever time this is. And you've got, he's up there just wailing away and playing his guitar. Yeah. A seven string acoustic. At least. It just has to be a little bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a 14 string. I liked this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. Again, you know, we we've talked like we've 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 talked in passing about you know yeah. kind of Bigfoot stories, and really we've always kind of played with the idea like eventually we're going to talk about it, but it's what approach do we take? And deciding yeah. to kind of take the more uh, encounter approach instead of just that whole deep dive that I feel yeah I feel I mean yeah. it worked well for Mothman, but I feel like it, it by the end of it it was a little much. Yeah, I think this is the definitely the better better approach, and and then we can get really weird with some of these encounters, which is a lot of fun. Exactly. Yeah, and for Bigfoot, there's just too much data. Oh yeah, to do it all at once. There's too. Yeah. Much. I mean, there are people out there who have Bigfoot podcasts, right? Who are you know 400 episodes in, and they've only ever talked about Bigfoot encounters. See, that's insane. Like, we could, yeah, we could literally, yeah, just do an entire show on the subject. Yeah. There's just so much, so I'm, I'm excited to like start peppering them in mm-hmm. as we go. Oh, we'll have to. It's, yeah, this isn't going to be the only one, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that Bigfoot is the most famous cryptid, period. Right? Like, closely followed by Nessie. Yeah. Not not even closely, though. It's Honestly. True. Yeah, it's true. They're, Bigfoot's they're still way above. Yep. Yeah. There's a reason because it's ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. It's, people see it everywhere, right? So, yeah, I'm even excited cornfoot. to start hearing some. Exactly, even cornfoot in a fucking parking lot of a state like Indiana. Even we have a bigfoot. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Well, I think that concludes episode 87, the Battle of Ape Canyon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, And you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at reverbnation.com slash reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers. Stay weird.
and trust in the unknown.